That should work. Okay. Um, so today's our last day on Dryden. I hope you really liked the essay on dramatic, I mean, um, the preface to fables. I actually have to dig out. Uh, we were talking about Alexander's Feast, and maybe what we should do is um, finish that by first going to um, some of the stuff in the preface to fables. Um, so what I hope, I sort of told you um, a couple of weeks ago. No, there's just one sheet. That's just a sheaf for you, George. That's only for you. That's a dedicated bunch of poems for you. Uh, so you're not, oh, I thought you were set, no, setting them around. No, no, no. It's just, okay. Um, the, uh, I will remind you that um, Dryden's critical essays, of which the very greatest and, and most wonderful, and I hope you did find it wonderful, is the preface to fables, really is the invention. Um, what you're seeing is the invention of modern um, critical prose, really modern prose writing in English. Um, there's nothing before Dryden, no one before Dryden writes the way he does in that easy and familiar style. People write letters in a familiar style, but Dryden was really the first person who wrote an essay that way. It's the kind of thing that if you tried to write it in a first-year seminar, you would get totally slammed. And the reason you would get totally slammed, I mean, you no, you would obviously get an A-plus because the sentences would be so good and the knowledge would be so um, overwhelmingly um, lucid. But the uh, structure of the essay seems to be digressive and wandering. And a phrase that, are you smiling because you agreed? Um, a phrase that Dryden uses three or four times is that he's going to return to the thread of his discourse. That's a, that's a phrase that he really likes in the essay, to return to the thread of my discourse. And what keeps happening is a little bit Polonius-like, and he wants it to be like Polonius. Um, he keeps getting kind of carried away in musing about whatever it is that he's musing about. And then he remembers that he's supposed to get back to Chaucer. He was talking about Chaucer, but somehow talking about Chaucer got him talking about Ovid, and talking about Ovid got him talking about obscenity, and thinking about obscenity got him thinking about the people who were against him because he was too obscene. But wait a second, Chaucer. Oh, right, Chaucer. Um, because Chaucer, even though he's sometimes obscene, um, always has good sense, even if you don't like what he says about priests, because the thing about priests is, well, some priests are good and some priests are bad. And suddenly he's talking about religion and the history of religion and um, the coming of Protestantism and Catholicism and so on. And wait a second, Chaucer. And he does that over and over again. Um, and that's the kind of thing that if you took it to the writing center, they would say, have you ever worked in the writing center, Tina? And what would you say? This is not a plant, but it should sound like a plant. What would you say? You'd say it was unstructured, and, and to make sure that he that you outline before um, you start writing, and make sure you follow your outline, especially if you're having problems with structure, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so the question is: Is Dryden really just kind of wandering off in all directions, or is there a reason for this? And Part of Dryden's relaxed mode, we've, we already saw it um, much earlier in the preface to Absalom and Kittifel, for example. But part of Dryden's relaxed mode is um, another version of what we talked about in looking at how monarchy 
and how the religion um, that he's putting forth in Religio Laici um, are all about being in a place where you're um, open to everything, where there's just a plurality of um, ideas and places you can go. And the idea is that a certain kind of relaxed open-mindedness that doesn't demand certainty, isn't fanatical about certainty, um, in either of the two ways that you can be fanatical about certainty, one way being I'm one way being didactic, that is, this is the and doctrinaire, this is the truth, and there is no other truth, and the other is if you see that you can never be doctrinaire about the truth, there there's no way that you can be absolutely certain that anything is true. Um, then the other mode of fanaticism is despair. If I don't know this, then I really don't know anything. Um, and there's nothing that I can possibly believe and no reason for believing that something is more probable than something else. That's, um, that view is the view um, in ancient times called Pyrrhonism, um, very, very radical skepticism. And it's a kind of skepticism that Montaigne, who's really the inventor in general of modern essay, writing um, was very, very interested in thinking about. Um, so the idea of an essay, the word essay means to try something out, um, to, to um, dicker around, to see how it goes, to see where something um, leads you or gets you. It's, um, we still have it uh, as a noun but more as a verb, um, let us assay a forward pass on fourth and two. Um, it's to try something, to see, to see how it works out. Um, that's what an essay is. It's trying stuff on for size. It's driving stuff around the block, to quote Raymond Chandler. Um, and that's what Dryden is amazingly good at doing, but also amazingly good at recommending. So one of the things to um, think about why Chaucer is so central um, to, to the... Um, preface to the fables. Chaucer is not by any means the only person he writes, he translates. Um, and there's something interesting about translating from English into English, which is what Dryden does. Um, he does it somewhat more funnily when he comes to Dunn. Um, he really didn't like, um, see now I'm going to resume the thread of my discourse and return to Chaucer in a moment. Um, he didn't like metaphysical poetry and the explicit attack on metaphysical poetry that you get in the preface to fables, uh, you would have to know to know it, but it's an attack on Cooley, um, Abraham Cooley, um, spelt Cowley, but pronounced Cooley, um, who was uh, the probably the most famous of the metaphysical poets of the mid-17th century. And um, what do people know what metaphysical poetry is? So metaphysical poetry was a movement essentially invented by Dunn um, and some of and and followed up on by some of um, his more minor followers. The only really major follower of Dunn is George Herbert. Um, Herbert is someone that um, that Dryden alludes to, we've seen him allude to earlier, where he complains about poems in the shape of wings or in the shape of altars, as though the um, shape of a poem on a page um, is part of what poetry is. He thinks that's just silly. He's referring actually to two poems by George Herbert, Easter Wings, which are in the shape of wings, and a poem in the shape of the altar called, unsurprisingly, The Altar. Um, 
Herbert, however, probably is Dryden's um, bad conscience. There's a whole lot of Dryden that I think people haven't noticed enough that comes out of Herbert. I'll also say, before resuming the thread of my discourse, um, Herbert's brother, um, his older brother, Lord Herbert of Cherbury, I mentioned this to you before, um, was the inventor or the first expounder of deism in England. And so in Religio Laici, where Dryden starts talking and writing against um, deism as being right but not right enough, um, he's actually been reading um, George Herbert's older brother explicitly there. Um, metaphysical poetry is the poetry that Dr. Johnson will call yoking things by violence together. And the way a metaphysical poem works is you get a kind of, you all, you've all read poems by John Donne probably, like The Flea um, or A Valediction for Bidding Morning. Is this familiar to people? Um, so the way a metaphysical poet works is you take an image, a simile of some sort, um, and you say something, as Robert Burns will later say, my love is like a red, red rose. And then um, the joke version of that is something we're very familiar with, which is um, that is um, shedding all the time, and um, whenever you grab it, you bleed um, because of the thorns. So obviously that's not when Robert Burns says, my love is like, like a red, red rose. He's not thinking of how the rose leaves are shedding and how the rose um, has thorns. Um, he's thinking about an obvious connection that you would make between how beautiful and lovely a rose is and how beautiful and lovely the person I love is. But what metaphysical poetry does is it takes similes or metaphors and pushes them as far as they can possibly go um, so that every aspect of one object is mapped into the thing that it's a metaphor for. So in A Valediction for Bidding Morning, for example, um, Dunn thinks about the relationship of him to his wife as being like a compass, um, that is a compass that you draw a circle with, not on first blush, the most poetical possible image that you can think of. But the idea is that he's traveling, he's on a trip, she's staying at home, but she's always connected to him so that wherever he goes, he's the moving foot of the compass, that is where you put the pencil, and she's the fixed foot of the compass at the center of the circle. And then he says, and then when I return home, it's like the compass closing up so that um, you get happier and you stand up um, straighter as I return home and the two feet of the compass come together. Um, there's a lot more to that, but that's a typical metaphysical conceit. You can feel that that's already a little bit grotesque if you're trying to um, ask, if you want to ask someone out, you might say we could make mu beautiful music together. You shouldn't, but you might say we can make beautiful music together. But what you won't say is, well, we could draw really intricate spirals together as we spin on the paper with your sharp foot, you standing on one sharp foot in the middle of the paper um, and guiding where the lines that I draw on that paper. Um, that's like not as obviously seductive. Um, uh, Joaquin Phoenix might try it. Um, so um, the, most, the most grotesque of all metaphysical poems, of all metaphysical poems by a great poet, is probably um, the poem called The Bag by George Herbert. Um, great poet, uh, grotesque and not very great poem, except greatness grotesquery. 
um, where he basically says, well, so Christ on the cross, um, his side is pierced with a spear by a Roman soldier, and so there's this gaping hole in his side. Um, and that was really a smart image of God to arrange in his scripture because what it means is that God has now become, is that, is that Jesus with this hole in his side is topologically equivalent to a mailbag. And now we can stuff our prayers in that bag, which is the hole in his side. And then when he goes to heaven, he'll be like a bag full of our mail telling God how much we love him and that he should forgive us. And that was so nice of you, Jesus, to turn yourself into a mailbag like that. Um, so it's a vivid image, let's call it, um, but not a highly poetical one. Um, Dryden did not like metaphysical poetry. It was exactly the opposite kind of poetry from the poetry that he liked and that he sought to write, um, which is poetry which is urbane and relaxed and which assumes something like that Popian idea of what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed. That is that what poetry does is it resonates with, chimes with the way people are thinking anyhow. It puts really well um, the kinds of things that people recognize. Poetry doesn't tell you something for the first time, but it gives you a way of seeing it beautifully put for the first time. And that's one reason that Dryden is so interested, as in the fables ancient and modern, in translation. Um, that is one of the things, to resume the thread of my discourse, one of the things that he says about Chaucer. Um, when he defends translating Chaucer into modern English, one of the things that he says about Chaucer is, yeah, there's some, there's some purists who think you can only read Chaucer in the Middle English and only if you know his abstruse vocabulary. Um, and that's fine if they want to read Chaucer in Middle English, let them. But what they shouldn't do is claim a kind of ownership of him whereby they would keep him from anyone else. So if you can read him in Middle English, read him in Middle English. If you can't, um, then here's Chaucer. He's great. Some of what I'm saying is not as good as the way he said it. It can't be because I'm writing in a modern language, in a modern idiom, in modern poetry. Some of what I'm saying is almost certainly better than the way he put it because I'm writing in a modern language and a modern idiom and in modern poetry. On the whole, of course he's a better poet than I am, but it doesn't do him any good to be a better poet than I am if no one can read him because his language is so outdated. What matters in poetry, and he says this at the beginning of the preface to fables, um, what matters in poetry is the idea, the structure, the thought, um, the theme that goes into it, and the last thing that a poet does is the coloring, is getting the meter right and the rhymes right and the balance right and so on. Um, that's, that's, um, that's putting the finishing touches on a poem. That's finishing it, not starting it. Um, so it's not, so the very thing which is most poetic, most poetic skill is also the thing that in a sense matters least in the long run. Um, and what's so great about Chaucer, he says, is that Chaucer gives you human life. And back in Chaucer's day, um, that human life back in the, um, in the 14th century 
Um, that human life is um, dressed up as palmers and knights and um, summoners and um, priests and priors and prioresses, etc. Um, the same people today are dressed up in different kinds of clothing. Um, but it's still the same idea that the basic human beings are the same, even if the clothes they wear, including the vocations that they have, are different. Um, and that, again, is something that's familiar to us from talking about Absalom and Achitophel. That is to say that um, the idea that the story of Absalom and Achitophel and David is the same story that's playing out now in modern times, 2,600 years later, between Charles and Monmouth and um, Shaftesbury, um, is things don't really change. That's that sort of um, relaxed, conservative view that Dryden has and that Dryden writes on behalf of, and that also makes him a monarchist. That is, it's because um, the king is the person who can be familiarly open to all different possibilities in all different parts of society without being a fanatic on either side, um, without being a fanatic either on the side of tyranny or on the side of anarchy, um, which are opposites where extremes meet. Um, that's what Dryden is saying in Absalom and Achitophel. You can see its poetical um, uh, payoff when you get to the preface to fables. So there are just a couple of moments that I want to look at, and this is partly um, what I've um, um, been trying to say is that uh, the apparent digressiveness of this preface is partly its point. That is, that he starts writing about something and it can turn into writing about anything else. And as I say, this is what he's praising in Chaucer. Everything he says about Chaucer is, he even says, is something he hopes people will one day say about him. That is, his language is old-fashioned. We no longer really understand 17th century English. We have to um, translate Dryden into 21st or 22nd century lingo. But he says, you know, if there's something that survives to be translated, that's great. Um, that's what I want. Um, partly I want to say this because um, it says a lot about Dryden's translations, not only of Chaucer, and not only, since I was about to mention this, of Dunn. Dryden has quite a wonderful little polemical set of poems called the satires of Dr. Dunn versified. That is, he says, um, I've, taken Dunn's, po I've taken, taken Dunn's poetry and turned them into poetry. Um, but it's, it's um, that poetry can be translated into the very language that it's written in. Um, because what's the soul of poetry is not its surface. And um, the soul will dictate the surface, but you want to get the soul. Um, poetry for a lot of people is the surface. Here are a lot of beautiful effects. Can we possibly get those into another language? The answer is no. You can't get beautiful effects into another language. You can maybe get other beautiful effects um, from another language, but you can't translate one beautiful effect into, into um, an equivalent beautiful effect elsewhere. But for Dryden, that doesn't matter. It's the soul of the poems that matter, 
and the beautiful effects are in the service of the soul of that poetry. And that's something he's thinking about again and again. And it's a way that he also has a sense, a middle sense of the rank and importance of poets. Um, that's, again, the issue we were talking about when we were talking about what authority poets have um, to make claims about politics or about philosophy or about anything else. And for Dryden, the authority is essentially the poets, good poets recognize they don't have that authority. And recognizing that they don't really have that authority, that they're very good at responding to what others are doing and thinking about those without necessarily knowing more than others, actually makes them very good spokespeople for their audiences, which is to say, for everyday people. Um, poets don't are not the unacknowledged legislators of the world, which is what Shelley will say about them 130 years later. Um, poets are rather the unacknowledged citizens of the world, um, those who understand um, what works and what doesn't for them, what works and what doesn't because they are themselves the citizens. And that's a way that Dryden has of thinking of the monarch as a citizen also, um, or as made up of all the citizenry together. The poet and the monarch are servants of um, the whole society not its masters. So one place that you can see this coming up here is um, I think and I hope you liked um, at the very beginning when he's describing himself in old age. Um, he wrote this about a year before he died. Um, and describing himself in old age, um, first he talks a little bit about poetry, then he talks about um, something that Milton had said to him about the importance of Spencer to his own work. And of course, Spencer said Chaucer was um, the greatest of all poets. Then he talks about, this is on page 399, um, he says, um, this is the first time he talks about the thread of his ideas. He says, in the meantime, to follow the thread of my discourse, as thoughts, according to Mr. Hobbes, have always some connection so from Chaucer, I was led to think on Boccaccio, that is Boccaccio, who was not only his contemporary, but also pursued the same studies. So I translated some Chaucer, then I translated some Boccaccio. Um, and um, he thinks about all these various things and then go to the bottom of page 400. Um, and he tells a little story. Um, um, I have... He says, um, I hope that this is good poetry. Um, I will hope the best that they will not be condemned. I leave all, all these translations to the mercy of the reader. I will hope the best that they will not be condemned. But if they should, if people think this is, this is bad stuff that I'm now writing, um, John Ashbery at, at around the age of 80 wrote a poem called um, <laughs> Random Doodlings of an Old Man. Um, and it's Ashbury at the age of 80, wondering about what, it's, what people will make of poetry written by someone at the age of 80. Um, he's still writing great poetry now at the age of 84. Um, but Dryden is saying something similar at the age of 68 or 69. Um, 67 or 68. I will hope the best that they will not be condemned. But if they should, I have the excuse of an old gentleman who, mounting on horseback before some ladies when I was present. So he tells a little story that he once saw. An old gentleman who, mounting on horseback before some ladies when I was present, 
got up somewhat heavily, but desired of the fair spectators that they would count four score and eight before they judged him. So he tells this little story about an old man, and then the old man says, um, I hope you'll wait till you are 88, as I am, before you judge my nimbleness as I get on this horse. So suddenly what looks like clumsiness becomes amazing, this 88-year-old man getting on a horse. And then Dryden quite wonderfully says, by the mercy of God, I am already come within 20 years of his number. So suddenly he's surprised and we're surprised that this story about an old, old man that he told, he's actually not that much younger. By the mercy of God, I am already come within 20 years of his number. So he has counted, if not to four score and eight, at least to three score and eight before he starts judging the old man. I am a cripple in my limbs, but what decays, what decays are in my mind, the reader must determine. So I'm old and lame, but as far as my mind goes, well, it's up to you guys to decide. I think myself as vigorous as ever in the faculties of my soul, accepting only my memory. So this is the first time in the preface that he talks about his failing memory, accepting only my memory, which is not impaired to any great degree. And if I lose not more of it, I have no great reason to complain. So his memory is starting to go, but it's not bad. He's having his senior moments. This isn't Alzheimer's that we're talking about. Um, and he's not really complaining about it. But notice the amazing dis disarming honesty in this prose. What judgment I had increases rather than diminishes. And thoughts such as they are come crowding in so fast upon me that my only difficulty is to choose or to reject to run them into verse or to give them the other harmony of prose. And there he tips his hand a little bit. Um, here he's saying, you know, I'm just kind of wandering around um, following the association of ideas which Mr. Hobbes, who, by the way, is not a good translator of Homer, he goes on to say, talks about. Um, but um, in the meantime, um, I... I have a lot of thoughts, and my real question is, do I put them in verse, or do I put them in the other harmony of prose? It's a great phrase. And he's suggesting, actually, I'm working on this prose with the same kind of attentiveness and care that I work on my poetry with. Um, remember where we saw the word harmony um, last Tuesday? Where's, the, where's that word so important in Dryden? Yes, the, the music of the spheres from harmony, from heavenly harmony. That's, that's how the world began. So here's the other harmony of prose. And he says, I've so long studied and practiced both that they are grown into a habit and become familiar to me. So that's part of the familiarity of his tone is that poetry is for him now not, and prose also is for him now not, this sublime and difficult achievement but it's what he lives with and what we should all live with. Now, the reason I bring it up is this idea of memory and of wandering also comes up when he explains why he translates um, both Boccaccio and Chaucer telling more or less the same story. And he says, oh, I forgot that I'd done um, Chaucer doing this already. So I got to Boccaccio, I thought, oh, that's a cool story. And only later did I realize that I'd already translated Chaucer's version of it. 
So there's a really interesting way in which forgetfulness and open-mindedness are being combined in this essay. Um, that forgetfulness means something like not simply sticking to a creed or a view that you've committed yourself to, um, but just seeing what happens. Um, learning again, finding things fresh and new, even at the time that they're familiar. Um, so this is Dryden um, late in his life, um, in what probably his most genial and agreeable mode. Um, one of the things I want us to look at is um, uh, is the very last poem he wrote, probably within a week of his death, although he didn't know it, um, and which I forgot to tell you to read, but it's the last poem in this book. So we'll get to that in a minute. It's only a couple pages long. Um, but let's go back to, um, we will get to, I know you're desperate to, to see Alexander's Feast. I should also tell you, see Alexander's Feast because it turns out it's being performed this weekend um, in Boston. Um, so if, so I would Google it. I saw it in the Boston Phoenix that there's, they're doing a performance of Alexander's Feast. Um, I guess in Handel's setting, but I'm not positive. Um, so if you want to hear it sung, uh, you should. Um, but go to the translations from Horace. Um, if, let's go to uh, page 206. Um, and there are just a couple of Horace's odes. We won't look at all of them. Um, but there are a couple of Horace's odes, at least parts of which we should look at. Um, so the first one is um, Book 103. That's on page 207. Um, the Earl of Roscommon was a poet, and Dryden translates um, an ode of Horace's um, as a sort of bon voyage present because he's about to um, get on a boat and go to Ireland over the actually pretty scary Irish seas. Um, and the poem that he's translating is a poem that Horace wrote for Virgil when Virgil was about to take a trip um, uh, on, on a boat. And um, I just want you to notice how different the familiar tone that Dryden gets in his translation of Horace, who also writes in a very relaxed, familiar, but also intense tone, how quickly Dryden gets that, how open he is to all sorts of different tonalities. Um, so what's the first difference you notice here? So may the auspicious queen of love and the twin stars, the seed of Jove, and he who rules the raging wind to thee, O sacred ship, be kind. And gentle breezes fill thy sails, supplying soft Atesian gales. As thou to whom the muse commends the best of poets and of friends, Thus thy committed pledge restore and land him safely on the shore and save the better part of me from perishing with him at sea. So what's different in sound in that translation from all the Dryden we've been reading so far? Yeah, is your hand up? Say. Well, um, yeah, so it's in tetrameter is one thing to notice. That is, it's um, four feet per line rather than five. And Leah? You, you said the same thing. Okay, so you don't have um, that propulsive heroic couplet that we're either used to or sick of, um, but you get a much, just just noticing. And does, does everyone notice that difference just reading this? How it's still in rhymed couplets. Um, and the rhymed couplets are still as gracefully um, and, and carefully handled 
um, and with the same kind of sprezzatura, um, that is the same kind of ease about them. Um, but the sound of tetrameter is really different from the sound of pentameter. Yeah. Oh, um, I, is that more lyrical? Yes. Yeah. Right. So pentameter is more speech-like, and um, it's more forceful in what it says. This is more lyrical and um, more relaxed, but not relaxed as in saying anything at all, but relaxed as in not insisting on anything, but letting um, letting what it describes um, make it describe those things. So. Um, so just the tone of that is, is really, really different. Um, there's something wonderful. There's a re Grammatically, it makes sense, but you won't see it the first or second or third reading of starting a poem with the word so. Um, what do you mean so? In uh, Horace's word is sick. The first word of the, of the, of the Latin is sick or thus. Um, in fact, does anyone know why it begins with so? You find out in line seven. That is, it's it's um, this is addressed to the ship, and what he's saying to the ship is, "So may you be treated as you treat Virgil, or as you treat Ross Common." So it's the "as" is what picks up the "so" at line seven. So may the auspicious queen of love and the twin stars, the seed of Jove, and he who rules the raging wind. To thee, O sacred ship, be kind. Maybe I be kind to you, O sacred ship. And gentle breezes fill thy sails, supplying soft Etesian gales. Um, the Etesian um, wind is a north, is a soft, dry north wind. As thou, so may you be treated as thou, to whom the muse commends the best of poets and of friends. Thus thy committed pledge restore and land him safely on the shore. So may you be treated by Jove and by Venus and by the winds and by the waves, the way you treat my friend. So, um, but still, the word so just gives you a kind of impression of continuity. Um, this is life and this is how things should be. It then becomes in Horace's hands, um, typically, and in Dryden's hands, typically, but we won't um, have time to spend on this, a description of, of possible violence kept away. So it's a description of the first people who ever got into a ship and how scary that must have been. Um, and all the things that can go wrong um, if, you, if you go sailing. Um, and just go to, um, I guess let's go to um, uh, line 34. Um, Man will always try, even though God has set up a boundary between land and sea, um, we will, daring men will always profane the inviolable main. The eternal fences overleap and pass at will the boundless deep. And then he says, no toil, no hardship can restrain ambitious man inured to pain. So man is always insisting on going where we shouldn't be going. Um, out to sea, um, out to space. Um, we're inured to pain. We've been punished by pain, and we um, therefore don't know our place. The more confined, 
the more he tries and at forbidden quarry flies. So the more rules are given against us, the more we break those rules. Thus, Volt Prometheus did aspire and stole from him the seed of fire. A train of ills, a ghastly crew, the robber's blazing track pursue. Fierce famine with her meager face and fevers of the fiery race and swarms the fending wretch surround, all brooding on the blasted ground. And limping death, lashed on by fate, comes up to short and half-hour date. So Prometheus steals fire for us and he gets punished. And not only that, but death comes and makes us die younger than we used to. All this is true, but this made not Daedalus beware with borrowed wings to sail in air. To hell Alcides forced his way, that is Hercules, plunged through the lake and snatched the prey. Nay, scarce the gods or heavenly climes are safe from our audacious crimes. We reach at Jove's imperial crown and pull the unwilling thunder down. So that's what we human beings do. And um, notice the, the adjective unwilling. Um, is it that we unwillingly pull thunder down? Or is it that Jove is unwilling to thunder at us? Or is it that we, as kind of proto-Ben Franklins, are figuring out, and I want to say something a little bit about what um, Tina had asked about Dryden's membership in the Royal Society. He doesn't, he didn't engage in any experiments or any science, and in fact he was kicked out of the Royal Society for not paying his dues. Um, but he was interested in science. And the idea that, that, um, that Newton and his followers um, were trying to figure out how thunder worked, um, all of that is something that he's um, interested in the Horatian version of. But all of this, as the next poem will tell you, book, um, book 109, um, all of this is about what it's like, how pleasant it is to be in a safe place in an unsafe world. And that's what Horace is always writing about, where the safety of the place is only a momentary safety, but there's pleasure in that momentary safety. Horace is the poet who writes about how nice it is um, to be in, in, a, in a cabin when there's a, with a fire burning when there's a snowstorm raging outside. Um, for Horace, that's the best of human life, and it doesn't last, but that's what pleasure looks like. And Dryden gets that in, the, in um, Book 109. Behold yon mountains, hoary height, made higher with new mounts of snow. Again, behold the winter's way to press the laboring woods below, and streams with icy fetters bound, benumbed and cramped to solid ground. So look at that, says Horace, slash Dryden. And what do you do when you behold that? Well, with well-heaped logs, dissolve the cold, and feed the genial hearth with fires. Produce the wine that makes us bold, and sprightly wit, and love inspires. For what hereafter shall betide, God, if tis worth his care, provide. So it's a terrible night out there, but let's have wine and fire. And as for the future, if God cares what happens in the future, let him do whatever he wants. Let him, let him alone with what he made to toss and turn the world below. At his command, the storms invade, the winds by his commission blow, till with a naughty beats him cease, and then the calm returns, and all is peace. 
So that's all God's doing. As for us, tomorrow and her works defy. Lay hold upon the present hour. So this is one of the great moments of the carpe diem um, motif in Horace. Seize the day. The present is all that you have. Lay hold upon the present hour and snatch the pleasures passing by to put them out of fortune's power. Take them now so that you may not lose them simply through the blind workings of bad mischance later. Nor love, nor love's delights disdain. Whatever thou gets today is gain. So don't disdain love or its delights. Whatever you get now, here, today, that's in the, that's in the um, plus column. Secure those golden early joys that youth, unsoured with sorrow, bears. Here, withering time, the taste destroys with sickness and unwieldy years. For active sports, for pleasing rest, this is the time to be possessed. The best is but in season best. So while you're young, enjoy life before you know the terrible things are going to happen. The best doesn't last. The best is only best in season. That is, um, when it's the right season for those fruits before they rot, when they're ripe but not rotted. The appointed hour of promised bliss, the pleasing whisper in the dark, the half-unwilling, willing kiss, the laugh that guides thee to the mark when the kind nymph would coyness feign and hides but to be found again. These, these are joys the gods for youth ordain. Now, the important thing, I think, to see there is that um, Neither he nor the person to whom the poem is addressed. A lot of a lot of um, Horace's poems are invitations um, to friends of his to um, enjoy a moment, enjoy an evening. Um, it's their invitations to parties um, to get drunk. Um, things don't last, but while you're doing them, do them. Um, notice that for both Dryden and for Horace. Um, this isn't a poem written to a youth who doesn't know that youth doesn't last. It's rather a poem which is about recollection of a time when you didn't know that youth wouldn't last. Um, and that's a very different thing. Um, and it says something about what poetry is in old age. That, that in old age, um, in older age, poetry is partly remembering what youth was like before you knew about old. Um, and um, there's Dryden is all poetry you could say um, is about being in one place and thinking what it would be like to be in another place and feeling in the words of the poem and feeling in um, the way the poem points you to something else feeling that very difference between where you are and what you are being reminded of, feeling that very difference as where the power, intensity, or emotion, or affect of the poem is coming from. For Dryden, that sense of, of feeling something elsewhere, that's that openness that he keeps talking about or that I keep pointing out, pointing to him talking about. Um, go to Alexander's Feast, since that's um, a long poem about poetry. 
Um, and remember the situation here. We started talking about it on Tuesday. If you have the um, penguin, it's page 391. Um, that Alexander has just conquered Persia and Persopolis um, and has put Darius to death. Um, in fact, if, uh, I think the note says this, um, Dryden is actually monkeying with, with the sequence. That is, Persopolis was burned before Darius was executed, but in the poem, um, the order is reversed. Um, and now he and um, Theus are celebrating the conquest of Persia, and Timotheus, the poet, the one whom, uh, I'll just remind you, Pope, Pope who revered Dryden more than anyone, um, will compare to Dryden what Timotheus was as Dryden now. Um, Timotheus is placed on high, and he sings a song, or he begins singing a series of songs about victory. Um, at line 20, Timotheus placed on high amid the tuneful choir, with flying fingers touch the lyre, the trembling notes ascend the sky, and heavenly joys inspire. Um, inspire heavenly joys in the humans who are listening, but also inspire joys in heaven itself. That is, um, it can go both ways. And then he tells the story of Alexander's birth. The song began from Jove, who left his blissful seats above, such is the power of mighty love. A dragon's fiery form belied the god. So he leaves Olympus in the form of a dragon. Sublime on radiant spires he rode when he to fair Olympia pressed. And while he sought her snowy breast, then round her slender waist he curled and stamped an image of himself, a sovereign of the world. So the Alexander claimed, or people claimed for him, and he liked believing it, that his father was not actually Philip, which is what the first line of the poem says, that um, it's Philip, second line, Philip's warlike son, um, but that his father was actually Jove, that he was a demigod, that Zeus um, had sex with his mother, and stamped an image of himself, a sovereign of the world, that is Alexander. So the listening crowd admire the lofty, sound. Um, the sound not of Jove and Olympia, but the sound of Timotheus. Um, we may have forgotten that for a moment, but then we're reminded. So the listening crowd at this party celebrating the conquest of Persia admire the lofty sound. A present deity, they shout around. A present deity, the vaulted roofs rebound. With ravished ears, the monarch hears, assumes the god, affects to nod and seems to shake the spheres. Um, so Alexander hears this song. He loves it. He assumes um, the posture of godhood, of deity, that the people are chanting based on Timotheus's song, affects to nod, which means he's willing to nod, that he agrees with this. But also he's, he's thinking that he's running things and that he is himself shaking the spheres, remember the music of the spheres that we saw in the song on St. Cecilia's Day, when in fact it's Timotheus who's doing it. Um, Alexander is nodding in time to the music, but imagining, the music is making him imagine, that the music is following his nodding. So it's not that um, Alexander starts nodding and Timotheus starts playing the lyre and the flute in time with his nodding, 
It's that Alexander nods in time with the lyre and the flute. It's like when you make um, make animated movies. Um, you know that the voice talents do um, read the script first. They're recorded first, and then the animators follow the way they do the the way they read their lines. Um, so same here. It's it's not that um, Timotheus is following Alexander. It's that Alexander is following Timotheus's music. Um, the chorus repeats, with ravished ears, the monarch hears, assumes the god affects to nod and seems to shake the spheres. And now we get a sort of um, what Dryden said about Chaucer, that is that every human type can be found in his poetry. We now get a kind of run-through in the different ways that Alexander, the monarch, can um, experience different kinds of human emotion. Um, the, again, the poet and the monarch are those who are most capacious in their feel for human emotion. But notice also that it's the poet who is dictating passion to the monarch. Timotheus is making Alexander and everyone else feel the way he wants them to feel. That's again something that Dryden talks about in the preface to Fables, where he says that um, what poets can do is praise Augustus, but also make him want their praise. And what they can do is satirize bad priests, which is the only check against their power that bad priests have, and satirize bad politicians, which is the only check against their power. Um, poets can sometimes be John Stewart, and they can sometimes be, well, it's, I don't know, John Kennedy, someone who can raise passion in an audience. So, the praise of Bacchus, then the sweet musician's son, who's Bacchus? God of, God of wine. Um, so now we get Dryden showing Timotheus, or channeling Timotheus, writing in a measure appropriate to partying and drunkenness. The praise of Bacchus, then the sweet musician's son. Of Bacchus, ever fair and ever young, the jolly god in triumph comes, sound the trumpets, beat the drums, flushed with a purple grace, he sh flushed with a purple grace, excuse me, he shows his honest face, now give the oboe's breath. He comes, he comes, Bacchus ever fair and young, drinking joys did first ordain, Bacchus blessings are a treasure, drinking is the soldier's pleasure, rich the treasure, sweet the pleasure, sweet is pleasure after pain. So notice how the stanza is like getting drunker. That is the kind of, if you were a really good actor, you would start slurring the last lines of this stanza. The sentences are shorter, they're more direct, they're easier, um, they're basically, that's what I think. Rich the treasure, sweet the pleasure, sweet is pleasure after pain. So he's conquered Persia, and now everybody's getting drunk, and the chorus agrees back as pleasure or a treasure. Drinking is the soldier's pleasure. Rich the treasure, sweet the pleasure. Sweet is pleasure after pain. So now the king is drunk on the music. So the music has acted like wine. Soothed with the sound, the king grew vain. Fought all his battles o'er again. So you can imagine him saying, Yep, then he tried to flank me to the right, but I came to the left and I'm like, bang! So, soothed with the sound, the king grew vain, fought all his battles o'er again, and thrice he routed all his foes, and thrice he slew the slain. So he's acting kind of drunk. 
The master saw the madness rise. The master is who? Timotheus is the real master here. The master saw the madness rise, his glowing cheeks, his ardent eyes, and while he heaven and earth defied, changed his hand and checked his pride. So now Timotheus is going to play a new kind of music, and he's going to check Alexander's pride. He chose a mournful muse, soft pity to infuse. He sung Darius, great and good. So Darius is the person whom Alexander has defeated. But now Timotheus sings about Darius, great and good, by too severe a fate, fallen, 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 fallen from his high estate. And again, just think how amazing it is to dare that kind of line, that falling repetition of fallen, 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 fallen. And you think it's over, but it's not fallen from his high estate, and weltering in his blood, deserted at his utmost need by those his former bounty fed. On the bare earth exposed he lies, with not a friend to close his eyes. With downcast looks, the joyless victor sat, revolving in his altered... This is, excuse me, Alexander again now, is all downcast. With downcast looks, the joyless victor sat revolving in his altered soul the various turns of chance below. And now and then a sigh he stole, and tears began to flow. So Timotheus has gotten um, Alexander from wild, drunken madness to sorrow over the person he himself has killed or has has, um, defeated and whose death that brings along, revolving in his altered soul the various turns of chance below. And now and then a sigh he stole and tears began to flow. And Timotheus is pleased with his effect because he himself is not caught up by his own poetry. Um, This is again something that Shelley is going to object to. Poets who are able to produce emotions without feeling them themselves. The mighty master smiled to see that love was in the next degree. So here, Alexander's feeling so much pity that Timotheus, as a musician, is going to modulate pity to love, which is very close. The mighty master smiled to see that love was in the next degree. Twas but a kindred sound to move, for pity melts the mind to love. Softly sweet in Lydian measures, soon he soothed his soul to pleasures. So from sorrow, he soon soothed into pleasures. Timotheus soothes Alexander to pleasures. War, he sung, is toil and trouble. Quoting what? Shakespeare? Yes, the Scottish play. War, he sung, is toil and trouble. Honor, but an empty bubble. Never ending, still beginning. Fighting still and still destroying. If the world be worth thy winning, think, oh, think it worth enjoying. Lovely Theus sits beside thee. Take the good the gods provide thee. So that's in the Horatian mode there. That is, take this pleasure. Don't always be looking for honor, but now take the pleasure. Um, Seize the day. The many rend the skies with loud applause. So love was crowned, but music won the cause. Um, 
that's probably the central line of the poem. So love was crowned, but music won the cause. It looked like love, and it's standard to say love is the greatest of gods, but Dryden is saying, no, it's music. Music even commanded love. The prince, unable to conceal his pain, that's why pity and love are close together, gazed on the fair, that is Theus, who caused his care, and sighed and looked, sighed and looked. Notice how metrically interesting that is. And sighed and looked, sighed and looked. Do you hear how it sighs after the comma? Um, metrically more standard would be and sighed and looked and sighed and looked. Then you just get perfect iambic pentameter. But you don't. You get that wonderful pause, which is the sighing in love that, that Dryden is imitating Timotheus producing in Alexander. And sighed and looked, sighed and looked, sighed and looked, and sighed again. At length with love and wine at once oppressed, the vanquished victor sunk upon her breast. So he's vanquished by love and wine, but really by Timotheus. Is your hand up? Okay. So the prince, unable to conceal his pain, gazed on the fair who caused his pair and sighed and looked sighed and looked. They are repeating it. Sighed and looked and sighed again at length with love and wine at once oppressed the vanquished victor sunk upon her breast. Now strike the golden wire again a louder yet and yet a louder strain. So hear how that gets louder. Break his bands of sleep asunder and rouse him like a rattling peal of thunder. Hark, hark, the horrid sound. You should do that with a Hebrew accent. Hark, hark, a horrid sound has raised up his head as awaked from the dead and amazed he stares around. Revenge, revenge, Timotheus cries. See the furies rise, see the snakes that they rear, how they hiss in their hair and the sparkles that flash from their eyes. Behold a ghastly band, each a torch in his hand. Those are, those are Grecian ghosts that in battle were slain. So now think of your men who lost who lost their lives in defeating Darius, and unburied remain, and glorious on the plain, give the vengeance due to the valiant crew. Behold how they toss their torches on high, how they point to the Persian abodes and glittering temples of their hostile gods. So, burn down Persopolis. The princes applaud with a furious joy, and the king sees a flambeau with zeal to destroy. Theus led the way to light him to his prey. And like another Helen, fired another Troy. Um, so after that, you then get finally a kind of tip of the hat to, so all of this was Timotheus. Oh yeah, and then St. Cecilia came and she invented the organ. Um, and it's almost as though what he's doing here, which is really interesting, is he's saying, Timotheus, he stands for what words can do. Um, words here being what is sung to the flute and to the lyre. And then this is a poem about music. So I have to finish it off by saying, yeah, St. Cecilia, she's the one. She invented the organ. And as I mentioned to you last time, the thing about the organ is that um, she added, at line 165, she added length to solemn sounds with nature's mother wit and arts unknown before. Let old Timotheus yield the prize or both divide the crown he raised a mortal to the skies. She drew an angel down. 
That refers to the myth also. It's not only that the sound of the organ is angelic, but that in the myth, an angel does come down and converts her husband. Um, read the note on it. But notice what he's essentially saying is, yeah, there's music, and that's St. Cecilia, but she splits the crown with Timotheus, that is, with poetry, that is, with me. Yeah? Um, this is kind of an uh -huh. A note on Timotheus? That's bad. Or on, on St. Cecilia? Did you look at the ode on St. Cecilia's day? There are notes. Well, I didn't read the notes in this, so let's just look. But um, the, the uh, song on St. Cecilia's day is what page? Um, page um, 292. So let's look at the note on page 292. Um, so the notes to page 292 are on confusingly enough, um, page 562. Ah, you're right. Okay, the story of St. Cecilia is St. Cecilia gets married, um, and she is told by um, God um, or by an angel, she's warned that she's supposed to be a saint and that she should not have sex with her husband even though it's her wedding day. Um, and then he says, okay, um, we're married, let's go to bed. And she says... Um, no, actually, I'm not supposed to have sex with you until... I forget what it is she's supposed to do, but um, he says, really? And she says, yes, and he says, um, what will you do for me? And she says, well, you'll be converted and you'll become a good Christian. You'll, you'll be in heaven. And he says, look, if an angel comes and tells me that, I'll believe you and I'll convert on the spot. And then they go home and there's an angel who says you should listen to her and he converts on the spot. And then later she becomes martyred. But um, there's a, the, the celebration of her wedding says that there was singing um, t um, in, in its celebration. And that was mistranslated as um, that, that f at her wedding she invented the organ. Um, it was that the organs of singing were used, but it was mistranslated. Um, it's a third century story that after the organ was actually invented, people misunderstood the original Latin as saying that she had invented the organ. Um, and so she then became uh, the patroness of music and the inventor of the organ. Um, that's that's um, the false hagiography about her. So I'm sorry, I was sure they had a note on it in, um, in the Penguin. I think it's, it's, for the price, it's a really good edition of Dryden. You certainly don't want to complete Dryden. Uh, well, no, I mean, you certainly do, but I certainly couldn't force you to buy a complete Dryden. Um, but maybe some of the notes are not quite as good as they should be. So, um, Anyhow, that's the story. Um, let's go. This will be um, the end of our little talk about Dryden. Let's go to the secular mask, which is the last thing in this book. It's page 515. Um friend of mine, I'll just tell you that, remember I warned you about obscenity in this class, um, a friend of mine says at the very end of this poem, this guy doesn't like Dryden at all, but he says, you know, the secular mask, that's one fair motherfucking well. Um, and that's really what it is. So secular in the title here means literally um, having to do with an age or a century. If you know French, you know that siècle means um, century, or fond de siècle means end of the century, um, the period which is at the end of the century. 
um, the fin de siècle 19th century um, writers are people like Wilde and Dowson um, and, and A.E. and so on. Um, it, it refers to a time when the, when the centuries are changing. Um, in Latin, the word really means ages. So what in uh, the Lord's Prayer is world, gets translated as world without end, amen, in Latin is omnis saecula saeculorum. Um, that is for all ages of ages. But really it tends to mean the end of an age as the end of a century. Um, secular for us, meaning not sacred, means fallen time. That is the time of history and not the time of transcendence. So secular kingdoms are those which command what happens in time in this world where the sacred has to do with the transcendent world. Um, that's how, the, how secular started, meaning secular humanism or the creeping secularism that is destroying our country or whatever. Um, but originally, it's, it simply means time measured in large um, areas on human calendars, and hence century is a good, um, it's, it's a good word for a century. So the secular mask is a mask. What a mask is is an allegorical um, little bit of theater. And what the secular mask is is um, the literal meaning of the title is a mask, is this little bit of theater um, which is done for the end of the century. Dryden died May 1st of 1700. Um, he wrote this between mid-April and his death in 1700. So... Um, the last couple of weeks of his life is when he writes this. Um, maybe a year after the preface to Fables, where he's already calling himself crippled in body. Um, it's also, but he also wants secular here to mean um, secular as in a mask about um, secular mythology, that is Janus and Cronus and Diana and Momus and so on, not a mask about um, God and um, his angels, um, so it's the, it, it's the last thing he's writing, and he's also thinking of the Tempest, that is Prospero, who represents Shakespeare at the end of his life, does what's called the Mask of Ceres. Do people remember this in the Tempest? Um, he shows the mask um, in which all the goddesses um, and gods, who are actually the spirits of the island, appear to Ferdinand and Miranda, and then suddenly he remembers that Caliban is after him, and he breaks the mask up. And Ferdinand and Miranda are surprised, and they say, what's going on? Um, and he says, oh, these visions, as I foretold you, um, were mere dreams. Um, and um, and this are, it wasn't real. Um, we are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Um, Shakespeare is always present to Dryden. So um, Janus comes in. Who is Janus in mythology? Yeah. No, that's Kronos. Anyone? Two faces. Hence, January is the month that looks forward and backwards. Um, the, Janus is the god of two or sometimes of four faces. Um, he looks in both directions. He is therefore the god of doorposts because he looks in and looks out. Um, the Janissaries are guards at the door. Um, and January is the uh, month that looks both before and after. Um, god, the god of thresholds. So Janus comes in and calls upon Kronos, who is the god of time. 
Kronos, Kronos, mend thy pace, and hundred times the rolling sun around the radiant belt has run in his revolving race. Behold, behold, the goal in sight, spread thy fans and wing thy flight. So Janus comes in and says, the century is a hundred years old. Now you're almost at the end. Hurry up, mend your pace. Don't be limping so much. You're there. You're almost there. Just get it. And then Cronus comes in with a scythe in his hand and a great globe on his back, which he sets down at his entrance. So here comes time. You know those cartoons of the old year coming out? The year is an old man and the new year is a baby coming in that you get every December 31st or January 1st. Think of that image. So Kronos now, the god of the century, is an old man. But that means he's, he's Dryden. That is, Dryden is about to die. Um, he's dying with the century. The um, end of the century is also the end of Dryden. Um, and so this is a poem which is both political. It's about the 17th century and everything that happened. And it's also personal. It's about being an old man and being about to die. And here comes Kronos with a scythe in his hand because time cuts all things down. You know Kronos means time as in chronology or chronometer. Um, so time cuts all things down. Here's old time with a scythe in his hand and a great globe on his back. But he's exhausted, which he sets down at his entrance. Kronos speaks, weary, weary of my weight, let me, let me drop my freight and leave the world behind. I could not bear another year the load of humankind. So that's the century speaking, but that's Dryden speaking. I could not bear another year the load of humankind. Enter Momus laughing. Who's Momus? The god of mockery, of parody, of mummery, um, the god of um, satire, the god of, of sarcasm and laughter. Ha, 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 ha. I'm sure there's a better way of acting that out. Any of you an actor? All right. Yes. Can you do it? Do a good laugh. Laughs are hard. Good. That's perfect. Thank you. But you need six of them for the meter. All right, you can stop. <laughs> there, you got it. Right. Um, there's the most famous line in Titus Andronicus, and Shakespeare's play Titus Andronicus, some of you probably know, is the line. Titus has just heard after having had his hands chopped off to try to save his sons from execution. Um, his hands get sent back to him with the heads of his son. Um, and he's been lamenting and, and full of bitterness all the way through. And then this last piece of disaster comes to him, and the line is, Titus, colon, ha, ha, ha. And his brother says, are you out of your mind? This is terrible what just happened. Why are you laughing? And he replies, because I have not another tear to shed. Um, but that laugh in Titus Andronicus is, is um, complete, a lot of people have, have pointed that out, is completely sublime, utterly unexpected. Um, I partly mention it because Anthony Hopkins in... Um, uh, the movie version of Titus, directed by Julie Taymor, um, does that laugh just amazingly well. Um, he just starts chuckling, and then the chuckle just just kind of takes over the world. Um, it's quite a wonderful thing to do, but it just showed me how hard it is if you're an actor 
to do a line, Titus, ha, 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 well. Um, so you did it well. Um, ha, 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 well hast thou done to lay down thy pack and lighten thy back. The world was a fool ere since it begun. And since neither Janus nor Kronos nor I can hinder the crimes or mend the bad times, tis better to laugh than to cry. Now, I suspect, I doubt anyone's ever, well, no, everyone has always said everything. I've never seen this said, but I suspect that when you see Janus and Kronos in that line, um, kind of reading it rapidly, you're supposed to also see James and Charles. That is um, capital J, capital C-H, um, those are those are big capital letters in the 18th century, um, and Janus, James and Charles, both Jameses and both Charleses, um, are gone now. Um, James II has been um, overcome during the Glorious Revolution by William and Mary, um, so they couldn't stop what happened in the century. Neither Janus nor Kronos nor I, Mary, Mamas, I don't know can hinder the crimes or mend the bad times, tis better to laugh than to cry. And then they all three repeat, tis better to laugh than to cry. Janus, since Momus comes to laugh below, old time begin the show, that he may see in every scene what changes in this age have been, then goddess of the silver bow begins. So now the mask starts. It's only two pages long, so we have um, time for it. Um, in comes Diana, the goddess of the hunt, Horns are hunting music within. Enter Diana. Remember, we saw the Ann Kilgrew painting. Um, I mean, the Ann Kilgrew poem about the painting about Diana. And this is the beginning of the century and the beginning of life, is hunting. With horns and with hounds, I wake in the day. The beginning of things. And high to my woodland walks away. I tuck up my robe and am buskin soon. And tie to my forehead a waxing moon, getting bigger. I course the fleet stag, unkennel the fox, and chase the wild goats or summits of rocks. With shouting and hooting, we pierce through the sky, and echo turns hunter and doubles the cry. So that's all the power and high spirits of youth. The chorus repeats it. Janus says, yes, then our age was in its prime, free from rage and free from crime. A very merry dancing, drinking, laughing, quaffing, and unthinking time. Notice how, again, we're modulating through the ages the dance of Diana's attendants, and then war comes in in the person of Mars. So first there was hunting, now there's mature life, which is war. Inspire the vocal brass, inspire the world is past its infant age. Arms and honor, arms and honor, set the martial mind on fire and kindle manly rage. Mars has looked the sky to red, and peace, the lazy good is fled. Plenty peace and pleasure fly. The sprightly green and woodland walks no more is seen. Sprightly green has drunk. The Tyrian dye has turned purple with blood. Sound the trumpet beat, trumpet beat the drum through all the world around. Sound a reveille. Sound, sound. The warrior god has come. And then Momus stops Mars. War is over. Now we've talked about the first two-thirds of the century, by the way, as well as a human life. The first part of the century was James having fun and hunting. The second part was the Civil War. Now the civil war is over, and Momus, who laughs at everything, says, Thy sword within the scabbard keep, and let mankind agree. Better the world were fast asleep and kept awake by thee. The fools are only thinner with all our cost and care, but neither side a winner, for things are as they were. The central line in Dryden. And then in comes love, the last third of the century. 
Calms appear when storms are past. Love will have its hour at last. Nature is my kindly care. Mars destroys and I repair. Take me, take me while you may. Venus comes not every day. And there again is that Horatian idea of love. Take me while you may. And then Cronus says, wow, the world was then so light I scarcely felt the weight. Joy rule the day and love the night. But since the queen of pleasure left the ground, I faint, I lag, and feebly drag the ponderous orb around. So I felt love, but those days are over. And then Momus says, and this is the terrifying, fair, motherfucking well part, all all of a piece throughout. It's all the same, says Momus, all of a piece, pointing to Diana. Thy chase had a beast in view. So you went hunting, but for what? For a beast. And then to Mars, thy wars brought nothing about. Nothing happened for all your warfare. And then to Venus, thy lovers were all untrue. Janus, tis well in old age is out. It's good that these times are gone. For Dryden, it's good that it's time to die. Cronus, and time to begin anew. Other people, another century. And then the final chorus. Last words Dryden wrote. All, all of a piece throughout. Thy chase had a beast in view. Thy wars brought nothing about. Thy lovers were all untrue. Tis well in old age is out. And time to begin anew. Hands of huntsmen, mints, warriors, and lovers. So I think that's a pretty amazing, he timed it right, his last words. I think they're pretty amazing. Okay, Rochester, very different. Um, I think, I hope you'll like him. <laughs>